Hello. My name is William Curley, but please call me Will. And welcome to Driving Mr C. This podcast is based on my new book, Driving Mr C, about a time in my life when the job I love wasn't paying me the money I needed and I had to find something, anything, that would give me an extra source of cash. Driving Mr C is a book about the weird way that, when we least expect it, fascinating characters can come into our lives. And an important life lesson that what begins as a challenge can sometimes turn into a genuine source of joy. It's about a fabulously eccentric senior citizen who I was asked to look out for. It's a clap for carers in book form. When I was driving Mr C, each week I'd write a newsletter to Mr C's son Graham, and those messages form the basis of the book. It's a tale that celebrates the fact that real life can sometimes be way funnier than fiction. In the podcast, I'll be welcoming some special and celebrity guests to talk about artistic dreams and a longed-for epic life, waiting for that call from Hollywood that takes a while to come, side hustles that actually pay your bills, job shaming, looking sideways at everyone else's perfect life, and your muggle uncle asking your dad, when is he going to get a proper job? Welcome to the Driving Mr C podcast. In just a moment, I'll be introducing you to my special guest, actress Sinetra Sarkar. Indeed, in the course of each episode, I'll be phoning a friend or friends to ask for their help in exploring some of the topics raised in the podcast. I suppose I should introduce myself a little better. I'm a freelance theatre director and my book came about in the first place because a few years ago I had several well-paid projects cancelled at the last minute including a huge opera production in Italy, and with a young family to feed and a mortgage to pay, suddenly I had to find a way to make some extra cash. And so, despite my feelings of failure after 30 years of professional stage work at suddenly having to take a side hustle as a chauffeur, I started driving Mr Ron Clemson, a retired businessman who lived at a nearby retirement village for well-to-do elderly people. As you'll find out, Mr C was a real character, and as I got to know him, we had more and more hilarious and moving adventures together. In the course of the Driving Mr C podcast, I'm going to be talking to my guests about the changes of direction they've had to take in their working lives. Some of them freelance artists, but others in all kinds of careers. I'll also be talking about the psychological side of career change, how we can feel a failure when things don't go according to plan, when our dreams don't seem to be coming true. And I'll be celebrating some real heroes. When I was driving Mr C, I was fortunate. I wasn't the one living with him and coping with the ups and downs of his physical and mental health. Mr C's carers were incredibly patient, hardworking and kind. And in recent months, carers have been the underpaid heroes of the pandemic. And I'll be celebrating their work and meeting some of them in the course of the podcast. But now it's time for the phone a friend section of the show. I'd like you to meet my friend, Sinetra Sarka. You may know Sinetra from her performance as a consultant on television in Casualty, a nurse in No Angels or for her lunchtime appearances on Loose Women and her brilliant ballroom dancing on Strictly. 
But I first met Sinatra when I was directing her in a play at the Bush Theatre in London. It was a tiny venue, a room above a pub, really, but with a great reputation for a terrific new writing. This play, The God Botherers, was by Richard Bean, who later became famous for writing a West End smash hit called One Man, Two Governors. Alongside Sinatra in that play at the Bush Theatre was an actor called David Oyelowo, who has ridden off to Hollywood fame and is now one of Oprah Winfrey's best mates. Sinatra is one of the best storytellers I know, and I'm so pleased that I've managed to persuade her to take a break from her busy work schedule. Here's the interview. I'm thrilled and delighted to welcome my, I suppose I better not say old friend, my dear friend, uh, Sinetra Sarka. And Sinetra, thanks so much for coming along and uh, a very warm welcome. Oh, hello. This is a pleasure. I mean, listen, when you get a phone call from a, a director that you've worked with on stage, you don't say no. So, Sinetra, this book, Driving Mr. C, I just wondered if you had any thoughts. I wrote this book based on a fact that I had failed to make enough money from my directing career to be able to feed my family. And I know there are lots of artists out there who have to take uh, side hustles in the world. And I just wondered, I mean, you've always been at the top of the tree. I bet you've never uh, had any struggle at all. (laughs) I understand that you were picked up very young on the streets of Liverpool and chosen. And then you went straight off into an amazing drama called Brookside. Well, let's be honest. I got my big break at 15, right? And that's my big break done. So what I had to do is make that big break last as long as I possibly could. And as I'm from Liverpool, the ducker and diver in me has sort of managed to, with imposter syndrome in the back back, work my way up a ladder that's been really quite hard to navigate because the ladder just keeps changing, as you well know. And what I loved uh, about your candid honesty about, you know, how hard it is to be an artist, especially as we're all getting older, is that, you know, you channeled everything that you did when you weren't being a director into a book which actually explains so much of who you are and where you keep your like you keep your creativity even when you're doing other jobs and I really loved like there was something in your in the opening pages of your book which was a Samuel Beckett quote which is about failing better yes Samuel Beckett says ever tried ever failed no matter Fail again, fail better. I mean, what that that speaks to me so much because failing better is what I suppose every artist has to do. We all have to fail better to get better at anything. I suppose the problem I had was that I was looking sideways at other directors and thinking that everybody had the most gilded career. And I think in a freelance artistic life, you know, that kind of professional jealousy must be uh, a problem along the way. It's very hard. I think everybody suffers this no matter what profession they're in, though. We talk about it because we're both in the entertainment industry, the theatre industry, you know. We are creatives, but I know friends of mine, many, many friends who work in different industries, whether it be the financial industry or the travel industry, and they feel the same problems because what happens is you look at your peers, you, you, you know, your social groups, the people that you've tended to grow with 
and then you notice that other people are doing better than you and some are doing worse but you don't tend to look at them as much do you? you really only look at the ones that are doing well because we're patting them on the back and as we're patting them on the back we're realizing nobody is patting our back so how much pressure did you have along the way to get a proper job oh i, I listen i'm an asian I'm an, I'm an asian from a pair from two parents who've got degrees and are super academic so um there was a lot of pressure for me to find a proper job and I wasn't terribly academic. I wasn't the brightest pupil at school. I, I found my place as the joker in the class. And there were no jobs for people like that. So I think I found it really hard to prove my point. I think a lot of the reason behind my career being successful to a certain extent is because I was adamant that I was going to prove to a lot of my family that, that, that what they were expecting of me, I was going to do better, but in a way that they didn't know. So were they horrified or surprised, or what was their reaction when they found out that you were getting the acting bug? Nonplussed. They were absolutely nonplussed. This wasn't even a thing. The, the indifference <laughs> when I was on TV for the first time, like, there wasn't like, everyone, let's rush round the t- TV, Sinatra's going to buy on No, I think I may have watched behind a cushion the first episode. We did have video recorders back then, so I know that... Both my parents did watch it, but there wasn't the jubilation that you kind of envisage for being on TV because back in 1988, there were no Asian women who looked like me on screen, especially not 15-year-old schoolgirls. So it was such an anomaly. We didn't quite know how to react. It's like the first time for anything you go, I didn't realise this was something to celebrate. And so the, the expectation was to, can, uh, was to continue and go to university, which I did, but I had this bug. It is that it's true when they say when you get the bug, you get the bug. I just realised there was a job that I I actually really enjoyed that I'd never been, it never been presented as a job. And I have had hard times because, of course, along the way, when you make that decision that oh, I think I'm going to be an actress, it doesn't just everything kind of stops. The minute you, I found that the minute you get to that crossroads where you make the decision, everything that's an obstacle presents itself to you. And I, I found that after university, I thought, right, time for acting. And there was no work. So what did you do? What happened next? It was really quite, it was a really, it was a really big shock for me because I think I thought it was waiting for me, the work. Yeah. And I just had to make the decision. And then when I finally did make the decision, because I'd been offered a proper job at a car sales room, and I'd said no. Because oh, wow. I, because I wanted to be an actor. And it was like, which one do I want? Do I want the full-time job? or do I... And because I thought I'd made the hardest decision in saying yes to acting, I was really... I think it hit me. It was a form of depression, I suppose. But again, I was 20-something, and... A lot of my peers, everyone around me was moving up very slowly. Up, you know, friends of mine were working for new airlines, Virgin, you know, yeah. and things were happening. Wow. Free yeah. flights to places, and they yeah. were all getting excited about their jobs, and I was sort of very stagnated in this place of waiting for an audition. Mm. And then I'd go for an audition, and then maybe wouldn't get it. So I had to find in myself some sort of boost an ego boost to con- to believe I, I i had purpose and i think that's what happens you you find what your purpose is going to be and then you lose it in the same instance and i feel i feel like there was 
a lot of trying to put on a brave face, the bravado, especially with family and friends. Yeah. Again, I come from a doctor's fam a family of medics and academics, and they're all just waiting for the news, and I haven't got any to d deliver. And I think that was was a real life lesson for me. And I think, again, reading what you've done, reading the book, that you managed to you managed to flip something bad into something good. And I think that's another reason why I think we, you and I get on so well is that we, we do like to see our glasses half full rather than half empty because we truly believe we have something to offer. And I think that's what I ended up having to do. I used other skills that I've got inside me and enjoyed using them. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit of a saleswoman. I used that. I went door to door selling leaflets for Pizza Hut and stuff like that and actually pretended I was doing an acting role. So each door I would knock at, I would be a different character because these people didn't have a clue who I was. You know, I tried to find new ways of still being an actor yeah. in a normal life, which I think is what you've done in your book. Do you think there are lots of actors and performers and dancers who are very often on the point of giving it all up and then that phone call comes and they're away again? Do you think that's a common thing for people who have the performing bug? Yeah, I think that's classic. I think we, we've all heard of people who are just about to give up on something and then their last phone call is the one that turns it all around. And there's some really amazing stories that come from that. And I know failing is the way you only learn to succeed, you know, and prepare to fail, fail to prepare, all that business. And I, I, yeah, I do think there's a, there's a point, isn't there, where you have to make a decision. We are still grown up, we've got livelihoods, we want families, we want children. I don't know how long I would have allowed it to go on before I would have had to say, that's it, I've got to give up the dream. You know, my dad was always saying, maybe we'll see your name in lights one day, son. I don't think he ever really understood um, what success uh, represented in my career but life is long you know we're too hard on ourselves anyway aren't we very often those that negative chatter in our heads is telling us that we're a failure you know when a baby is learning to walk a baby keeps falling over but they don't say I'm a really bad baby I'm really bad at this baby business they just go oh get up and try again yeah. and I think so often life is long and we need to pick ourselves up and dust ourselves yeah. off yeah I think the least you I think the least you expect it the better it is. You know, don't aim for everything. Just look around you while you're working your way up. I think that's been a really that comment you made earlier about looking sideways. There's two ways of looking sideways. You can look sideways and enviously see what everybody else is doing, or you can look sideways and see where is there space for you to be part of other people's journeys. Yeah, and you can find your gang that way. Yeah. If you're looking sideways and saying, oh, how did that person get that? You're not celebrating the fact that you might just be part of a community of mad freaks who have the same <laughs> passion as you. <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Didn't your mum come from an artistic background? Isn't your mum a famous dancer? <laughs> she is. She is a famous dancer. But of course, again, she follows in the same sort of footsteps that I'm talking about there was an academic expectation because she came from a you know, middle class family in Calcutta they were all full of PhDs in the family they all knew that uh, academia is the route to being 
to be able to provide. And so my mum was a statistician, you know, she excelled in maths and she was a really bright pupil and she used that to get a job over here in the UK at the Royal Insurance. She kept her dancing as a hobby. It was only when she was made redundant that the Arts Council and Merseyside Arts started saying, you're an Indian dancer, can you do a few, can you do this? And she started branching out more and more from the hobbyist side of her dancing world and then brought South Asian contemporary dance to the UK. I mean, really, she she was knocking down doors left, right and centre. And I think it's because she had dancing in her you know, in her back pocket that she could find that joy as a profession. But again, she would never have believed she could make a living as a dancer, just like you and I. I mean, what you did being a director in those moments is you pulled you pulled out your creative hat by writing about the second job that you had to take on, which I think is such a good, ex- it's a good excuse of still being able to say you're being creative because I've taken on jobs like in the past where, I mean, I've had some terrible jobs, Will. I worked in Westminster Parking Department, uh, Westminster Council Parking Department, literally site, you know, um, going through data entry after data entry of anyone in the whole of London who'd got a parking ticket. Wow. Boring. And if I'd have thought to do what you did and write a book about the amazingly unusual excuses people came up with for their parking tickets, I could have maybe, you know, maybe I could have done something like you and, and written a book about the interesting people I met. But I think that's what's so lovely about being creative is that you do find, what can I make of this? So where did the parking tickets uh, part of your life come in terms of your acting? Was that just before a big break, uh, an offer no, of acting work? No, I was a jo- oh, I was a real jobbing actress for a, for a long time. And in between a stint on Cracker or a couple of episodes of Bread or, a, you know, a, the odd radio play, in between that, I would be temping in Cadbury's. I'd be anywhere Office Angels sent me. I was Office Angels temp of the month, I'll have you know. But it was very hard because you'd be telling people, I'm an actress, nothing to prove, nothing to show. These people that I'd be speaking to were not going to, you know, put in their diaries, don't forget to watch four minutes appearance of Sinetra Sarkar in the back of an episode of, you know, Emmerdale. <laughs> so it was almost like you... You're, you're the only person that believes that you are an actor sometimes. I think it's really hard to convince people that you're an actor when they don't know your work. But it, it's even harder to convince people you're not just an actor when you're out of work as an actor that people do know. So, of course, I've been on TV in people's homes since 1988, in and out of different shows. You know, most households have have had me in their living rooms to some extent Mm. for 30 years. We're talking 30 plus years. So if I were to then try and get a job in a factory or as a Uber driver or something, I feel like that would be really hard for me. So the routes that a lot of other people have had, I wouldn't be able to necessarily jump into without having to face those really awkward conversations. I remember that story about, remember Pete Beale from EastEnders. He was really famous. And then I'll never forget reading... It was a really scathing article in a tabloid saying he's a car park attendant now and uh, my heart really went out to him because I remember thinking that could be me, that could be any of my friends. In fact, that is many of my friends and this is how we you know, ridicule that level of 
unemployment. And so I think we have to be very hard-skinned to be in this industry. There's a lot of job shaming that goes on, isn't there? You know, somebody had to... I was reading about somebody who had to get a job as a, in a shop, you know, security guard in the shop or something. And the sense that you're expected to have made it, you're expected to have arrived, and you're expected to have sustained yourself um, non-stop. The thing that's fascinating is that you know, you look sideways at other people and think they have everything sorted or that they've got the most enviable life. Um, people I might think as a director that I'm in competition with. And actually, you only have to scratch the surface to find that everybody's got their own challenges. Oh, that yeah. real life for everybody actually is complicated. Oh. And that we're only really as happy as the stories that we tell ourselves in our own heads anyway. And oh. the thing I noticed in having to take this job driving Mr C was that how much more there was to life, how many stories there were that as you know people who work in the arts maybe we are storytellers and we get a chance to feed off all the world being a stage and um i certainly found out a load of stuff from um you know working alongside mr did, c can i ask you something did mr c ask you anything about being a director was he interested in the fact that you're a director or was it like a blank page and he just sort of accepted you as his driver he was interested and he was fascinated by my stories and he was interested in what i was up to but he was such a fantastically eccentric character that sometimes he was totally clear and um on the ball and other times he really was away with the fairies. But you must have had experience with, through your dad's uh, being a GP in Liverpool of uh, eccentric old people coming to the door and asking for <laughs> Dr. Sarka. Did you meet some... Um, it's interesting you should say that, right? Cause intriguing and eccentric characters in, in growing up in the way you did. Definitely. So my dad ran Naughty Ash Medical Centre, Ken Dodds. Naughty Ash? Of tickling stick of fame. Of tickling stick fame. Ken Dodd came and did the opening of the surgery for five and a half so hours. So Naughty Ash, forgive my ignorance as a southerner, is a real place in Liverpool. Oh, yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. Naughty Ash Medical Centre is my, was my one of my first jobs ever. I four. thought it was just a fictional place oh, no. that Ken Dodd had invented for the Diddy men to live in. But there is a place <laughs> called Naughty Ash. There's a place called Naughty Ash. Very, you know, it's L14. It's, the, it's a very, really prominent part of Liverpool, actually. And the people from Naughty Ash are down to earth, they're salt of the earth, and they adored my dad. I mean, he was their favourite doctor, from what I hear, because I didn't get spotted on the streets for being on Brookside. I got spotted I got spotted on the streets for looking like Dr. Sarker. <laughs> hey, are you Dr. Sarker's daughter? Oh, you spit an image of him, you. Oh, you look just like my doctor. And I'd be like... I don't want to look like my dad oh. and everybody. So he was a mini celebrity in Naughty Ash himself. Not that he ever made anything of that. But I remember there was this one time my dad tells a story about going to a pensioner's. Um, it, was a, it, was on, it was on call and it was a late night visit. And he went into the house of one of these elderly pe pe patients of his who was lying on his sofa and needed attention. And dad said there was another lady who was there with him and... My dad arrived and the, uh, there was a dog in the living room and, you know, he said, my dad said he was treating this old man with dementia, trying to, you know, make him comfortable. And this dog cocked its leg up and just started weeing all over the sofa. Wow. And everybody sort of awkwardly glanced eyes, but nobody said anything. And dad thought, well, it's their house, you know, if this is the way they want to be, this is the way they want to be. And then as he was leaving the house, you know, given a prescription, et cetera, et cetera, and as he was walking out, the lady went, Doctor, you forgot your dog? 
Oh. And my dad was like, it's not my dog. So some random, some dog, random dog had just walked into the house with my dad wow. and cocked his head. And I remember thinking, these are the sort of things that you, you hear. I mean, the tales of a doctor, again, his day was never the same. Every day was different. Very much like what I chose for my life to be. I, did, I didn't want a nine-to-five. I suppose a lot of people feel like that, but doctors don't have the same day twice. Yeah. yeah. And and the oddest things happen, but yeah, he had And this... they're having to improvise as well. Whatever comes into the surgery in the morning, they're having to deal with. The thing I'm aware of in the time that I was hanging out with uh, Mr. C and I was driving Mr. C is how close tragedy and comedy were in many of his delusions. Because sometimes he'd think he was, you know, King Lear and all-powerful, even though he'd given away his kingdom. And was a retired businessman but other times he'd um i remember one time where he thought he'd seen an elephant outside inglewood where he lived uh, on the fence a, a young an elephant and its young calf and i said well that's great ron if you see the elephant again why don't you get jocelyn your carer to take a photo or shall we put the binoculars on the window so that you can see the <laughs> elephant next time it comes but so that was a kind of funny way in which his delusion worked. But there was another time where I had to break it to him yet again that his mum and dad were probably had probably not with us anymore because he'd say to me, "Will, I really want to go and see my mother. I want to do more for my mother." And I'd say, "Well, is there something we can do? Do you mean you want to contribute to some memorial or some charity? And he'd say, no, no, I, I want to go and see my mother now in Ollerton Road in North oh London, off the North Circular. And just when I had to gently break it to him yet again that his mum and dad probably weren't with us anymore and probably were in a better place, the scales fell from his eyes, he'd curse himself. So on the one hand, the fun of thinking he was still a powerful businessman and buying and selling property and telling me we needed to have another business meeting about the company figures and me saying, oh, Mr. Clemson, I'm, that's above my pay grade. I'm just your driver, you know. And then on the other hand, these terrible moments where... Did you have to do that a few times? Did you have to keep reminding him so he never remembered once? It happened several times. And every time I felt like it was like, me breaking it the to first. him that his mummy was dead and did he take time. it like it was the did he what would happen is that he would turn it in on himself and then say oh my god well i'm so sorry i'm so stupid yes of course you know but it, it there was there was this mixture of the fun that could be had with his imaginary world and the way that the the boundaries blended but then there was also just really the the tragedy of um not knowing quite where he was and feeling unmoored in the world, which I, I suppose with an ageing population, we're going to be facing these things more and more. Do you know? He had carers who were full-time carers, and they really are the saints of the book. And I love the quote that you gave me to write on the back of the book, which says that it's a clap for carers in book form. And we know that during the recent pandemic, we've been turning up on our doorsteps to bang uh, saucepans and to give a clap for carers. But Jocelyn and Josie and Maria really are the heroines of the book because they have to put up with so much from Mr. Clemson because he could be uh, wonderful and kind and benevolent, but he could be incredibly horrid and, oh, and cruel imagine. and short-tempered. And that's a really hard... Imagine, you know, again, from an artist's point of view, I'm studying Jocelyn's life far more, you know, with, with 
looking for the more melancholic moments for the drama because it is so dramatic that if if what you're saying there like you're having to tell somebody that their mum's died every time that they they've forgotten that that she died for me as an actor i want to speak to that to, to the carers to find out how are you who puts you to bed at night knowing you will wake up and go back to that world where you have to be so kind and so selfless and you're right the hulk you know carers i think again the umbrella of what we all do in our in our chosen careers a lot of it is actually reaching people that's what i feel i do as a storyteller i really hope i reach somebody whether they be in a hospital bed or sitting on their sofa and i i i bring something to their to their life whether it be happiness sad, sadness or grief and similarly the carers are the recipients of where we leave people so if you if you've uplifted somebody and you've given them a better day for your entertainment the carers have got this complete mixed bag of dealing with every emotion very much like we have to on stage or on on screen you know you have to deal with emotions we are literally living our lives based on dramatic moments and then these carers are doing the real thing they're the real deal getting paid absolutely nothing for it as well to deal with other people's emotions so isn't it funny how you find the connection in what we find interesting with people like carers for example absolutely and i really celebrate the work of jocelyn and josie in looking after mr c you know they made him comfortable and they gave him extra years of life because of the way that they um, really looked after him and you know i was driving him around the place and that was a great pleasure and taking him off to restaurants and so on but they were the ones who absolutely had to deal with what happened if he was unwell or if he was up in the night um, wandering around and, and, you know, not sleeping. They were the real saints of the piece. And I'm just glad that in the book Driving Mr. C, I'm able to draw attention to how wonderful they were with him. No, it's great. It's really nice. I think, um, I, think Mr. I think I think Mr. C is brought um, a whole new dimension to your work because actually... However much you might have thought this was something you were doing as a, as a side hustle, he would never have met you had you not been available and, and out of work. I mean, you probably changed his life. It's so funny that we never know what's around the corner in life, do we? And initially, I thought that having to drive Mr. C represented the fact that I was a, uh, a failure, that I wasn't making enough cash as a director, or that I'd had projects in a freelance life that had fallen through. And you know as well as I do that sometimes you have this annoying situation where you've got no work for a little while and then you know, that work um, clashes and you've got three projects coming in at once, which you can't do all at once. So I initially thought that um, I was a big failure to have to take on this driving work when it came along. But the brilliant thing is that he introduced me to whole new stories. And I think when we're in rehearsal, when we're working on a play together or when I'm working with um, opera singers, all the time we're looking for the right story that will help us to find um, the internal truth of a character that we're working on without getting too pretentious. We want to find the right intuition which is going to lead us to opening up how a character behaves or the world that a playwright's created for us. So I was certainly lucky that I got into this world with um, Mr C where I was experiencing all of his stories. And yeah. In fact, Inglewood, this... Um, this um, retirement village it's called 
is so full of old people with fantastic stories, all of them. Well, of course, well, look at what Richard Osman's done. He's gone and written a murder mystery on the back of looking at a retirement village and that sort of... There is something to be said about speaking to old people for their stories. Again, how many documentaries do we watch, which is like this is the last lot of World War II heroes we can ever salute. And I think as we, as we all get older, we need to start, like mining the stories more and I think this is a, I think what you've done is great and I think it, funnily enough like national service we should all at some point be given three months out of our working lives to go and help a Mr C <laughs> thank you so much Sinetra it's been absolutely brilliant to have you here as a guest on the Driving Mr C podcast thank you for your wonderful stories thank you Will The Driving Mr. C podcast is an etc. Sinetra production for Acast. The producer is Scott Carey and the executive producer William Curley. The music is by Blair Jollins with artwork by Tara Bissett. The Driving Mr. C book is available now from the Amazon bookstore. Oh, and these words are coming to you from Mr. C's enormous armchair, the one his family kindly gave me after he died.